Hey, I'm Joseph. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'm Joseph. And I'm Steve. We're exploring a simple question. Why do people do what they do? Welcome to Working Title. All right. Wonderful. All right. Okay, I'm ready then. Okay, well, Dr. Cotton, thank you so much for for doing this. And we'll start uh, the way that we start every episode, and that's just simply by asking this question. Um, When you find yourself in a social setting, the inevitable question always comes up of of just simply, what do you do? Um, And when you face that that, uh, question, how, how is it that you respond to that? I, um, uh, well, gosh, I'm stumbling over that a little bit because I just retired uh, eight or nine months ago. Uh, so 45 years I had been a teacher, and so it was an easy thing to answer. I, I teach uh, English and religion at, uh, at a small Christian university, and now that I'm retired, I don't know if that fits so easily uh, in one word, but I'm still essentially a teacher. That's, that's who I am. And uh, the form that takes is doing spiritual direction and uh, doing uh, workshops on spiritual uh, practices and uh, facilitating uh, prayer groups, that sort of work. So I'm really still teaching, but it's it's not in that traditional sense, or not only. Did, did you always know that you were going to be a teacher? Is that always what you wanted to do? Well, the way that uh, that worked in my my um, youth was when I, when I graduated high school and uh, applied for a few scholarships, the only one I got was to be a teacher, and I did not want to be a teacher. <laughs> but I did want to go to college, and I needed the money, so I accepted the scholarship. Uh, at the end of my junior year, I, I said, no, I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to be a teacher. And so I, I rejected the scholarship, found some other ways to finance that, uh, that final year, and and then I went through some uncertainty about which direction to go. Uh, spent some, spent uh, two or three years in the military, I think, while I was kind of figuring things out, and came back out by that time in a re- with a renewed relationship with God and the certainty that I was to be a teacher, that I knew that that was my calling in God. So a lot of irony, <laughs> if you will. Sure. But, what? I, but I've known then really since, uh, certainly by... By my mid-twenties, I knew exactly who I was in, uh, in terms of the fundamental orientation I had toward life, and that's teaching. So, so our paths intersected at Southeastern, uh, obviously, with you as a college professor, but what, what did you do in your early years? Were you always a college professor? No, I, I've taught every level, interestingly enough. I, I've taught uh, elementary school, I've taught middle school, I taught high school, and then I taught college. So I had been teaching uh, in the public schools in Columbus, Georgia, at, at each of those levels. I just, I loved teaching. I, I, uh, I don't know why I started in elementary, I did, but I liked that. And I thought, well, I want to see what it feels like at, at middle school, and tried that. Well, I think I want to see what it feels like at high school. And then the position at... Um, at Southeastern opened up, it was 31 years ago now, 32 years ago. Wow. And I just knew that God wanted me to take that position. So that was your first, um, that was your first college experience then with Southeastern? It was. It was my first uh, teaching at college other than a few part-time assignments, adjunct positions. Um, but I, my first full-time position was at Southeastern University, which was Southeastern College at the time. And you came on as an English professor? Yes, came on as an English professor. Uh, Southeastern was a small Christian college. The, the spirituality there was very strong, very sincere, and and I came there because I shared in that, that, that whatever I taught, it was, it was teaching spirituality and uh, what you might call faith integration was a key term that's always driven my ministry, that no matter what I was teaching or what setting I was uh, uh, serving in, I was always integrating Christian faith. Now, you, you've told me before that, uh, that you 
would have been, well, I think what you called a wannabe poet at the, early on. What, when was that? As a, as an undergraduate, I was a theater major. I was a poet, uh, wrote a play or two, that sort of thing. I, I really was an artist of theater and poetry and literature uh, as as an undergraduate. So my 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 undergraduate degree uh, is communication with a theater emphasis. Was the like the the interest in the arts was that something that was part of your early childhood as well? Uh, looking back, or was that something that you developed later? I developed it uh, particularly in high school. Uh, became very interested in in uh, creative writing. Became very interested in drama in high school and uh, pursued that as an undergraduate. What were you uh, finding both in it the community and and within um, the college setting those uh, those college years? What were you finding it to be an outlet for? Um, was it something that that as you discovered it? What what was uh, so interesting? Uh, and appealing to you about it? Well, I still think that the arts are the number two most exciting thing, most meaningful thing, most in-depth, most aware uh, kinds of activities you can be involved in. At that point, I didn't, when I was uh, in high school and uh, college, I I wasn't a spiritual person in an overt sense. Um, I sort of viewed theater and viewed literature as, as religious activities, but uh, I didn't have any specific kind of theological language or religious language for that. But in any case, for me, it, it is, it's um, a sense of connection, a sense of beauty, a sense of expression, a sense of truth, that the, the arts are expressions of that and opportunities for us to be connected, to be engaged. To, brought, to be brought into communion with it. I, I always found the arts, and, and my particular arts, as I say, were theater, literature, uh, poetry. Um, I always found them to be times of transition, times of intense engagement, of uh, feeling more fully alive. Uh, that's, that's what I experienced in the arts as a young person. One of the things that I loved about the way that you taught English was how how clear it was that these books uh these poems whatever whatever it is that that you were teaching really deeply meant something to you and, and what what were some of the early things whether it was in your career even in your childhood books that just were lifelines or those you know points of transition or transcendence for you where you were tapped into something that was more more deep or more true than even what you could see I I, um, I loved the work of the playwright Tennessee Williams. He's one of the uh, four or five great playwrights, I think, of the American theater. Um, Edward Albee, I really, really enjoyed his work. The poetry of people like uh, James Dickey, T.S. Eliot, uh, Lewis Simpson. Uh, those, those works, again, brought me that sense of intensification, connection, transcendence, aliveness. They 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 um, lifted me up, as I say, or made me feel charged. Can you talk a little bit about um, you know you mentioned um, finding a deeper sense of spirituality a little bit later than? Um, could you talk about that experience and then maybe one of my questions would be: Did it, in hindsight, then bring even more life? To the to the arts and the poetic uh, literature and, and things of that nature that you were already engaging in. Let me see if I can uh, how I want to comment that um, that uh, that question. When I'm 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 a third generation um, Christian, but I rebelled in my early teen years, which would have been in the '60s. And I didn't really return to God till the year after I graduated from college. So I was 10 years uh, not a Christian. And I, in some degrees, I was really kind of angry at the church. I found it hurtful and I found it narrow and uh, kind of against the imagination, the creativity, I suppose. And uh, as, I, as, as God began to bring me back in around age 22, age 23, 
came back to the Lord when I was 23, I, I began to see God in a much bigger way. Some, not, not the church is an expression of God. I, I, I began to see that, that, that at its best, it is an expression, but God is not, uh, God is not a Christian. <laughs> you know, God is not limited to the church. The church doesn't define him. If the church fails you in some way, uh, that's not God failing you, that God is the God of the universe. God is the God of all forms of human expression and and nature and, and and the universal and all forms of beauty and truth and goodness. So I, I and I began to see that a major part of what I loved in a in a play, right? I enjoyed in a beautiful poem or a lovely novel was the spiritual dimension. That in fact, what I was countering was this force of transcendence and this force of communion. That. That was what I was experiencing in the arts, that that it was God and the presence and action of God that moved me. And then that, of course, uh, the arts address all of humanity, I think. I think they're edifying. They make us more human. They make us more alive. Then they certainly address the full range of human activity, human expression, human relationships. But they do so from that deeper place and that more alive uh, kind of place. I, I, I began to see that. And then what I surrendered to then in, in, uh, at age 23 was the, the arts I were, was able to let go of in terms of my utter surrender, my utter embracing of what I was experiencing as the presence and action of God. Uh, my, my surrender there at 23 was to lay aside my art, because my art in, that, in one sense had been an idol or had been a substitute, had been had been something that kept me from seeing the higher truth or the deeper truth. So I laid that down, and then God brought that back to me as a teacher. By the time I'm in my, my mid-20s, I'm finally beginning to sort out how this spirituality, this call, this, this love of language and literature, how it will play out. I, um, I, I, I then was able to see how it fit together and see some way that by teaching literature by teaching uh, creative writing, composition, and so forth, I could touch that, that sense of connection, that need for deeper expression, the longing for meaning. So that's, that's what drove me to be an English teacher in a sense. Uh, oddly enough, I, I really did feel a call to wholehearted service of God, but God just seemed to say no to me, taking any sort of traditional route toward that. That he, that he really kept moving me, and this went on for 20, and, 20 years or so, it kept moving me more toward uh, literature, composition, creative writing, and, and yet still bringing me to be involved in the church, reading people like Thomas Merton and, and the T.S. Eliot and other major religious figures, Walker Percy, but never in an overt way to be, in a traditional way, to be a minister. And I always found that fascinating. When I came to Southeastern then, uh, at, at age 37, I came as a calling from God, just as clear and strong as if I were being called to take a, a pulpit somewhere. Mm. But, but it was to do the faith integration thing, to, to teach English and, and a religion course or two every so often, but, but to do it in a way that was not located in the Department of Religion. Yeah, I... I... I think that it was extraordinarily clear to me that that the way that you engaged teaching English, but even uh, there are such there are so many cheesy ways that this could have been uh, contextualized. You could uh, it could have taken the form of you know most Christian art, which is horrible. Uh, but you taught English extraordinarily well. But I think that it was clear that you engaged it pastorally or as if it was some sort of divine calling or ministry of yours. When, when did you kind of you mentioned Thomas Merton? When did you start to encounter contemplatives and contemplative practice? So I was. Uh, it would have been in the early seventies when God was drawing me uh, to Himself, 
And uh, it, as, as part of the late 60s and early 70s, I did have some of that curiosity and Eastern religion, some of that was going on uh, in, in the area where I, where I was in school, the University of West Florida. I was curious about that, did some coursework there, hung out with some expressions. But as I, as I really began to feel drawn deeper in God and uh, more profoundly into God, I was drawn to God in two major ways. One was the mystics like Thomas Merton and uh, John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila. And the other was I met the woman who would later be my wife, and she was um, she was a, a dutiful, lovely, spiritual uh, Roman Catholic woman, a good a good daughter to her father, uh, and her kindness, her her creativity, and, and and she's also a poet. In fact, I saw she turned out to be the real poet, and I. Uh, and I've turned out to be more of a teacher of poetry and teacher of literature. Um, but her, the relationship with her and her spirituality and her, the way she engaged spirituality and the arts was profound for me. And then particularly the work of Thomas Merton, I would think, was profound. And T.S. Eliot, those two, uh, were very profound there in the early 70s. And between her, on the one hand, and and uh, Merton and Elliot on the other, uh, I really came deep into God. I also want to mention, though, there was a um, a little Assembly of God church in, in the town where I grew up. It was the, the church where I did come to know the Lord Jesus and uh, accepted him in my heart. I was, I, In fact, I was like a lot of uh, young people, children, youth in my church. We got saved numerous times because they would bring in evangelists a lot of the time. And, <laughs> Man, I just responded, you know, three or four times to get saved. It was good. <laughs> and so that, I did go back and visit that church quite often and renew my friendship with the pastor there, but I was feeling more profoundly drawn by the, um, by my wife and by, by the reading of Elliot Merton and the other Christian mystics. The mystics is the way that I first came back to Christianity. They made it interesting, profound, multifaceted enough that it made sense to me. Now, later on, I would get involved with with the powerful, charismatic renewal that was sweeping uh, the country in the in the early seventies, and and I did become then part of the charismatic movement, and and the charismatic movement did touch the Assembly of God Church in Columbus, Georgia, where I was teaching at the time. So I did. I did come in that way, but initially it was through the Christian mystics, and uh, through my wife. And I also want to say that I think that charismatic um, practices and spirituality, Pentecostal practice spirituality, really are a form of Christian mysticism, mm. if you understand that as radical openness to the Spirit, that that you're just willing to be. Tr- be lifted up, to be set free of, to be brought beyond any particular uh, way of, of uh, expressing God or describing God, and, and to be just brought up into pure spirit-to-spirit communion. And that's the way I experienced uh, those things after I came into the Christian experience in the early 70s. So is that how you would describe a contemplative life or, or the life of a, of a mystic? Um, it seems like, you know, today's culture, the idea of, of a contemplative life um, is, is, it's a little bit trendy, but, but it seems like some people would define it as by going to one yoga class a week and then calling themselves contemplative. Um, how, how would you speak to, how would you describe someone who is living like Thomas Merton or, or whoever that is truly living what you would describe a contemplative life? It is this radical openness to the spirit. That's, that's the key ingredient. So contemplation is resting in the spirit or it's communing uh, spirit to spirit with God, or it's communing heart to heart with God. It's being in union with God it's 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 beyond all other uh, kinds of relationships, ways of imagining relationship, so that you move into what I call pure faith. Pure faith is one where you don't define the terms and set out the expectations. Mm. That's what the mystics have always, uh, <clears throat> the great mystics have said that for uh, hundreds and hundreds of years, is that 
pure faith is when you lay aside all ways of <coughs> describing describing what can be experienced, how it's going to be experienced, what order, what language you're going to use to describe it. It's beyond all of those things. doesn't mean we don't need language and we don't need uh, ways of organizing ourselves around the experience of God. Those are those are good, but those are not God. Sure. And it's easy to make them into idols. And idols, the primary problem with idols is they actually block you from God. They they turn you away from God. That's what's terrible about them. So you mentioned, you obviously mentioned charismatic movement, assembly of God, the kind of context that you've been in. You know, yes, Pentecostalism at its at its best, at its most open, would be a radical openness to God and to spirit and what spirit wants to do. But of course it, you know, the form that it takes is so much different than that often. And the form that it has taken the path that it's gone. So what, what was it like for you? You know, I, I, I don't suspect there were a lot of other people in the places that you were at that are reading Merton or T.S. Eliot. Uh, what was it like for you to see that movement as somehow included in a contemplative kind of mindset or lifestyle, but in, in function and form, it not being that. Does that question make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. Um, I consider my number one uh, spiritual teacher to be a young woman now who's 32, to be 33 shortly. Her name is Catherine Cotton. So my wife and I had uh, battled infertility for well over 10 years, uh, we we had we had worked with a Christian adoption agency in a couple of ways, and we we adopted her um, after those ten years, and she turned out to have severe autism, one of the most severe in in our case we're in the state of Florida, so the, one of the most severe cases of autism in the um, in the state of Florida, and she was one year old when we moved to southeastern, and so. Even as I began my career, I was so excited to have come to Southeastern, and I was experiencing such freedom both uh, in the classroom and in in fellowship with my colleagues, and uh, we had some wonderful chapel services back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, very special times. But but I had this severely autistic kid in coming online, three years old, six years old, nine and ten years old, and my my experience with the evangelical and Pentecostal and charismatic churches is they don't really have good theology for suffering, mm. long-term, unrelenting suffering. They, they really are more celebratory. They, they are more at ease when things, at least back then particularly, but I still think so too often, more at ease when things are positive, when things are going well, when things look good can dress up and look really handsome or pretty and uh, pretty soon you know by by the by 93 i would say our lives was the divorce rate's 90 percent when you have a really severe kid like that and uh, wow. it was either go deeper with god than the than the average church that i was able to find uh would take you and and, and even people wanting to cast demons out of my daughter, or pray for healing for her, like almost ripping her out of my arms to pray for healing for her. I'm exaggerating, but very aggressive. Uh, and you've seen these kind, I would Of course, yes. yes. And so that, that meant we either went deeper in God, or it, Christianity just wasn't going to work at all. And fortunately, my wife and I both, even though we, we experienced that stress, that that those ninety percent who divorce experience, uh, we we were both we both really loved God, and we were both able to go deeper in God in the midst of that deep suffering, in the midst of this estrangement from one another, and the ability to be able to to, to support one another in that pain. And uh, and that's when I really came into what I would call the contemplative dimension. I was sort of there by ninety six. Now, I wouldn't discover contemplative practices or a contemplative uh, community uh, for another five years. So for five years, it was like me and God. Mm. And I'm, I'm, I'm doing a little Job uh, discussion with him 
every few days, you know. Sure. <laughs> really, just it just didn't make sense to me. But that's that's a, a form of death and rebirth that so often we don't talk about in everyday Christianity, sort of dominant culture Christianity, this ongoing dying and, and being born again you have to do beyond the initial conversion experience and beyond the average Sunday morning experience. So so I became unable to to sustain life, I guess you would say, on the typical diet of, of charismatic evangelical and um, and Pentecostal language and practice Triumphalism. By, the, by the mid-90s, certainly. And fortunately, after stumbling around for those four or five years, uh, rereading Merton, and I discovered Thomas Keating read him, made a little bit of sense of that, but not too much. But I, I was able to find a workshop that introduced me to the actual practice, the embodied practice of the kind of contemplative prayer that Merton and Keating and, and John of the Cross uh, represent, the kind they teach. And, 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 of course, they're Orthodox Christians, you know, they, they, they did their work in the bosom of the Church. <clears throat> the Church wasn't always comfortable with them, you know, but, <laughs> right. but they, they loved the Church, the Church loved them, they're highly honored. And um, so that was the renewal of my Christianity and the deepening of my Christianity, and then I was able to continue uh, my service as a college teacher at Southeastern and, and uh, in, in concert with my brothers and sisters at, at the uh, university by then. In a, in a really positive Christian way. I, I'm glad you mentioned the the embodiment part of it because certainly uh, contemplatives have been a lifeline for me uh, and do help you make sense of a God that's bigger than sort of this triumphalism that you get in charismatic churches and everything's always up and... If, if things are not going well, then you don't have enough faith or whatever it is. So Too often. In, in, in so many ways, it helps you rearrange your, your own ideas about who God is or how the world functions. But there's a whole other element to it, which is this sort of physical, bodily experience of life. And so the ideas don't help you much when you're having a panic attack or something or you're struggling in deep anxiety or depression or whatever else what how did, how did you find that the contemplative practices that were embodied how, how did those kind of save you well you're talking first and foremost about about part of your christian orientation part of your christian lifestyle including silence and stillness to just be present with god and just open to god and and understanding that language won't won't reach him in any kind of ultimately deep sense, ultimately profound sense, and uh, beginning to do that was helpful to me. It meant it meant there was something deeper between me and God, or connecting God and me, that that was deeper than my questions, deeper than my fear, my anger. My disorientation, I couldn't sometimes seem to tell what was up or down or what was forward or backwards, uh, either spiritually speaking or emotionally. But you, you're drawn deeper than that, and you understand you can just rest in the silence or be present in the silence, even if you're turbulent in the silence, mm. resting in that sense. And then you develop some practices for that, you know, something, something like uh, centering prayer or a Christian meditation practice where it, it helps you to to be there, and that that becomes a fundamental aspect of your overall way of being a Christian and and expressing your relationship to Christ, being in your relationship with Christ. Would you would would you say that one of the strengths of the mystical tradition is its ability to uh, experience faith? Not not by eliminating doctrine, but but experiencing life and faith beyond doctrine, I guess, because doctrine is is wonderful until it fails. In a sense, um, you could uh, believe deeply in a certain 
uh, we would call it maybe a fundamental truth of divine healing, but then in reality, you experience the death of someone very close to you and now have to walk through the mourning and the suffering. And it, it becomes less about believing the right thing and being able to walk through the suffering with, uh, with the spirit. Yeah. If, if we, language is a men, is at the level of the mental language is not spiritual and it's not able to actually capture or provide spiritual experience. It can only lead us part of the way, or it can only point us in the right direction. So the mistake we so often make is, is to make language paramount Yeah. In, in one way or another, doctrinal formulations, or even maybe even some person that's really gifted as a speaker, we, we might esteem them too much or find too much. And all of that is keeping us from the spirit itself so that the language, the language keeps us in a, it keeps us from the very thing we want. If you keep talking about how good, a piece of chocolate cake is, and you never actually stop talking enough to eat the cake, (laughs) then you don't really know how good it is. Right. And language can do that uh, so often, and and so much of Christianity in the the West takes takes the language, which is merely pointing in the right direction or trying to lead us or move us in the right direction and become kind of substitutes or become really idols of one kind or another. Well, we think that's it, and you have to do that a certain way, and and you keep just obsessing on that, circling around it one way or another. So you need a spirituality that that uses good language. Language is vitally important, but it uses language in a way that moves us into the spiritual realm. And when we re-engage language, the language is at the service of the Spirit, not in this kind of dramatic way that we so often do it in Pentecostal or charismatic circles, but in a humble way, because our language is never going to be 100% uh, representative of God, but it can be at the service of God. It can be at the service of the Spirit. So we can use language for a certain time and in certain ways, as long as we understand that the language needs to be in the service of spiritual communion, spiritual connection, sitting in the presence, practicing the presence. And so often we don't know that in, in the way that religion is done, Christian religion is done. So would you, would you to, to borrow your metaphor, would, would you say that the chocolate cake that we are to eat and experience is silence? Uh, it, because uh, the reason I ask that is because obviously— uh, one of the biggest things that you were known for and that meant the most to me when during my time of uh, studying at Southeastern was those moments in the middle of class where we would get to a lull and you would run out of, not run out of things to say, but we would get to a place where you'd say, let's, let's just spend some time in silence and thinking about this. Let's, let's get outside of, you know, this jumble of words and, get into something deeper and, and obviously silence, you know, is something that you practice regularly and is a daily thing for you. So is that, is that the, the primary form that the quote unquote chocolate cake would take for you? Well, ultimately it's both. And, um, ultimately it, it, it is one, but for most of us, the only way we're going to get to this heart to heart, this, uh, communion with God and this 100% of, uh, surrender to the Spirit, yielding to the Spirit, flowing with the Spirit, is developing a, some sort of regular practice of silence. Uh, if, if we, now here's, here comes my bias, if, if we do that by listening to our favorite preacher only, or if we do that by listening to a particular worship group only, then we're still using a means. We're using something to lift us to the presence of God. And my experience and the teaching of people like John of the Cross is, is that if you really want to go deeper in God, God is going to take your pleasure in those kinds of spiritual helps Mm -hmm. away so that God alone will be your, your rest, will be your communion, and you will rely on God in pure faith to provide what you need. Uh, so, um, silence, 
I, for most of us, silence is absolutely essential in terms of learning to practice the presence, recognize the presence of God, apart from religious activities or religious language or sweet uh, emotions or or noble intentions. And and uh, as Steve was saying earlier, a lot of times when you hit something really profound, a really deep suffering, painful loss or so forth, words are not the thing. Mm-hmm. Words are not the thing. Well, and now, silence it, is a direct confrontation to what you wish spiritual experience would be, because it isn't sweet or comforting when you first experience it. It feels like it's deafening, or it's uh, it causes you into yourself, into places that you don't want to go or you don't want to think. Yeah, I've heard one religious teacher say, now he said this with a chuckle, he was teasing us, but he said, God is the silence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, I wouldn't personally quite say that, but... There's a sense in which, unless you can be present, attentive, uh, you can you can have a, your, and move your being in the presence of silence. That you're not going to fully sense God in the in the expression of words or in the act of service or in the act of worship. That they, they will somehow or another not be pure prayer, as as the desert father mother, and mothers talked about it, for instance. Switching gears a little bit, uh, Dr. Cotton, I'm, I'd love to hear you speak to this. So you you, rec- you said that you were recently retired. Um, yes. And, and so I imagine, and you might tell me different, but I imagine that retirement for you is not maybe just playing golf or sitting in a hammock all day, every day. Um, and so I wonder, do you almost in a sense feel like you're 18 again, like um, seeking out what is purpose, what is calling in this season of life. It's just almost reliving those early years of trying to figure out what to do, which led to you to be a teacher. Are you experiencing currently that same sort of sense of rediscovering what this season of life means or vocation means in this season of life? I I think you're, I think you're, um, really touching on something that is definitely happening. I, I am experiencing kind of a death and renewal in terms of my calling to be a teacher. And uh, before I retired, I, I was certainly a, a contemplative. I was a person radically open to the Spirit, radically committed to the Spirit. But I, I also was an English teacher, and I... I I needed to be sure that I was teaching the content and administering the skills and holding people accountable for uh, doing the kind of practice, the extended practice, drill and practice necessary to learn those things. So now I'm moving into teaching contemplative spirituality or radically open spirituality only. I'm not I'm being born into this ministry. I'm in the process of being born into this ministry of of uh, spiritual commitment, pure and simple. I, so I don't have a job that I have <laughs> to do in order to, in an objective sense. I don't have I don't have someone I have to be accountable for in that objective uh, sense. Right now, I'm accountable to God. I can I can be with you guys, and certainly I am accountable to you right now. I need I need to I need to fit in with the expectations, the need that our activity to make this podcast involves. But I'm doing it because I I I am open and present and available to the Spirit in a deeper and fuller way than I was nine months ago. And that's new. So I am kind of starting all over again. I, there is a death and rebirth. There is a freshness. There is a, an awkwardness, even, uh, as I, as my identity changes in some way. I mean, I'm still going to be Ricky Cotton, and I'm still going to be a friend of Joseph Phillips, whom I've known all these years now. Ten years, Joseph, probably, right? Unbelievable, yeah. Yeah. At least, and, no, 12 years. So he's still, I'm still going to be recognizable to him. But in another sense, I something has turned or something has shifted. Something has come into being that is new and different in terms of my calling to be a um, to be a, a a teacher or a minister or a facilitator 
of contemplative spirituality. Well, I, I just love that uh, because th- there's there's a million options, but one of one of the main options for you would have been to look back on forty years of teaching and 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 really lean in because that I mean, how could you not find identity in that of doing that all those years? You were Doctor Cotton to so many people, but instead of instead of kind of relishing in your history and looking back at that and just kind of riding into the sunset. I love that there's this openness to new identities coming to life. And so there is this sort of naivete that is present of I get to figure out who God wants me to become in these next, you know, 25 years or however long. And I love that about you. I, I want I want that sort of openness because I, I, I don't think it is uh, I don't think it's something that's common. Well, it certainly is a, a, a naivete involved. I, I mean, I just don't know a lot. I don't quite know who I am. I mean, people are asking me, even this conversation. I'm, I'm. This is not a conversation I would have had a year ago. You know, <laughs> I didn't. I, I wasn't here. And it's a, it's a new place. It's a profound kind of transition, uh, renewal or rebirth. It, it, it really is different. And there's an awkwardness to it, an uncertainty. Um, but I know stuff now I didn't know a year a year ago about how this feels and how it works. I do know that already. Yeah. Yeah, but I I think does it feel uh, does it give you a sense of satisfaction or does it feel like a blessing to you know I, I know it will take new forms and there is a freshness and a newness of what lies ahead, but but to arrive at this point in your life and realize that what you had spent uh, doing over the previous 45 years is still part of who you are. Like, uh, I I think that it's it's a sad thing for me to watch people spend 40, 50 years doing a job that has only ever been a job. And then in retirement, they just, they couldn't wait to leave all of that behind. But it's refreshing for me to hear you speak in a way that that speaks to the vocation that you have done for 45 years as being integral to who you are to the point of you will continue to give expression to that even if it is in a new form yes that's right you're you're absolutely right it, uh, the the fact i've been a teacher i'm still a teacher the fact i <clears throat> do love the the uh, great writers and love when things are well phrased and effectively communicated all of that will be part and parcel, because among other things, a Thomas Merton is a is a great writer, uh, for instance, or a Meister Eckhart. They're just um, they're able to to put the things of the spirit into wonderful language. Now they're they're pointing us beyond the language, but they are able to use the language in such a way that it actually helps take us there, or helps uh, promote us there, helps push us there, lift us up. Uh, and so I, I think my sensitivity to language, to image, to the to uh, what's called the literary experience. Literary experience is when when you don't just understand the text with your mind, but you actually have an emotional experience, a physical experience via the imagine, via the imagination. So now that's completely at the service of the work of the spirit. And I, but it is using those same tools, that same kind of knowledge. Uh, Steve, you see what I'm saying, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I guess if, if we could go another uh, 10 minutes or so, maybe uh, we could spend this this last time um, just with a couple of, of random questions. Um, one thing I'm definitely curious to ask you, um, I, I, I love to, under, to know the routines of people, uh, especially as it pertains to their mornings, that... Uh, the importance of, of maybe just creating a foundation in the morning that, that you build the rest of your day off of. So do you have specific morning routines that you uh, follow? Uh, I do. I do. I, I like to, uh, I, I like to uh, spend time with, with God in the mornings. I, I get up very early. I like to be up by five at the latest, often earlier, so that I can have... <coughs> an hour and a half or two hours before the world is really is really moving just to be in in uh, largely silence often my wife will will join 
join in that time, but we, we were able to kind of be together in that without being real active or a real business-oriented, transactionally oriented. <clears throat> so we, um, I love to walk in the mornings. I, I like to go for these walks that are involved praying and walking, walking and praying. I really like to do that as well. I'm not going to actually come back and engage the scripture or engage other texts <clears throat> until sort of after the work day has um, has started. I, I like to keep that time separate uh, for more silence, walking, meditating, ruminating, if you will, and then and then engaging text more as a business part of the day later on. I do my my um, contemplative prayer periods uh, in the morning and in the late afternoon. And my wife and I will often be able to to do a, a silent prayer period uh, every afternoon. So if you won't, if you don't mind me bringing in the afternoons as well, that we like to end the day before we move into the evening with a time of uh, sitting in silent prayer together and then uh, doing uh, the daily office, the late afternoon office that comes across from the church, uh, the Vespers office. Yeah, that's great. So we pray that together. Uh, often we use Phyllis Tickle's The Divine Hours. Yeah. Lately we've been using a set of Celtic prayers uh, together, and it comes out of a book by uh, Philip John uh, Philip Newell called Celtic Treasures, Celtic Treasures. Yeah, I discovered... So, I don't know, is that a little too vague there, or did you get some some uh, particularity out of that? No, 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 that's fantastic. I I uh, discovered John Philip Newell several years ago and have not quit. He's He's been a wonderful teacher for me. He has a lot to offer, yeah, and he's beautiful. He writes beautifully. Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, so I was wondering if there is something, is there something that would surprise us to, to know about you? Do you have a hobby or an interest that, um, I don't like the word guilty pleasure, but, but maybe would, would surprise people that, that you were interested in? Um, you know, up until fairly recent years, I was a Bob Dylan fan. I don't know how many people knew that. Um, particularly as a young man, I, I was... And and uh, then recently, I have become a, a fan of Leonard Cohen, and Cohen has supplanted Bob Dylan of all of all things. Who would have thought? Yeah. And uh, his one particular song of his, I guess I would want to recommend to you, called Anthem. Hmm. The name of the song is Anthem, and he has a line in there. Let's see if I can catch it here. There's a crack. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Yeah. So there's a point to that song that in which in human activity, we often are busy building these things, and and we have this ideal in our mind of what we're going to build, and we don't, because they're so, they come out of our own imaginations, they come out of our own abilities and, and so forth, they don't really leave room for God, or they're not done in concert, in step with God, and so what what Cohen is saying there, and he's certainly no Christian, is that it's those places where we don't quite get the cracks filled that allow the Spirit to still come in and operate and move, uh, the Spirit of love. So it's kind of a, a fascinating theme. And that's, so that's one of the ways those, um, I guess you would call them those poet, songwriter, singer types that I do enjoy them as well, because you do get a lot of lovely melody, and yet you get those wonderfully poetic uh, images and uh, ways of languaging things. So I, I would recommend some of those kinds of people, the Judy Collins, uh, some, of the, some of the oldies but goodies there, and certainly Dylan still, uh, early Dylan, middle, middle, middle um, career Dylan and so forth. Is there is there any um, book of poetry or anything that you're reading right now that you could recommend to us and the listener that is uh, been meaningful to you? I um I have uh, several favorite poets that come to mind like right off. 
probably Mary Oliver's uh, newest selected poems. There's a pungent. Now, one of the things we say in the kind of circles I move in in regard to the arts is trust Trust the art that's produced. Don't trust the artist. <laughs> Artists do have a hard time sometimes in their in their lives. We're not looking at their lives. We're looking at their art. Um, so I say that as just a caveat, just in case. I, I always want to be sure people understand me in that. Oh, but, well, uh, e- everyone knows that I'm a heretic, so there's there's no problem there. You, you're in safe company. I don't want to get in as much trouble as you've gotten. <laughs> <laughs> So Mary Oliver, I would recommend that she has a relatively new version of her selected poems, very powerful. The collected poems of Raymond Carver. Raymond Carver is an odd, odd one to choose, uh, certainly not a spiritual man in any overt sense, but he's so aware of, of the meaningfulness and the, and the uh, beauty that's available in just ordinary people's lives, people lives are not altogether admirable, but they have these moments of beauty and communion and transcendence. So uh, he's able to express that with a real simple and and vivid way. And then there's a poet from the Middle East, from the Middle Ages, called Rumi, um, mm-hmm. R-U-M-I. So the collected Rumi, it's edited by Coleman Barks. I can't recommend that highly enough. And it, it he's just, he's funny. Um particularly as Barks presents him to us, and so deeply spiritual, but it's just practical and accessible and, mm-hmm. and enjoyable and funny. As I say, there's a lot of humor to it. So those three come to mind right off as, as poets. I, I just want to, I mean, obviously you and I speak all the time, but uh, I just want to say publicly how much you've meant to me and how... Um, profoundly impacted I've been by our conversations and by your influence. And, uh, I just really appreciate you and your work and, uh, and, and more than your work, just how tenderhearted and how uh, special you are to me personally. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. I, I, the, the rebirth of our relationship over this past year has just been a stunning gift to me and, uh, uh, unexpected and so rich and so encouraging. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you. And, uh, and Steve, a delight to finally meet you. I have heard uh, lots about you, and I'm looking forward to when I can meet you in person at some point. Oh, absolutely. There's no way that uh, you are not coming up to, to Charlotte to both speak at, our, at the church and then also lead a contemplative uh, weekend. I think we can have a really good time. I really think we'll, uh, we'll mutually benefit. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, and I'll talk to you soon. Okay. All righty. Sounds great. All righty. Bye-bye.